some things to do about that. Uh, any last comments before we close? I really appreciate your having been with us. Well, I thank you for having me. Yeah, I think that you know this is a battle that that uh, we might never win because we always lose, but it's a battle we can lose if we if we stop fighting. And parents, I think, have power, and we should you know put our power. We 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 can vote, and we should vote for people who know what good education is, and we should vote for in the school you know counselors and, and commissioners and so on who, who knows, and we should keep fighting for our own children and, and as you say you know uh, stick and, and join together and get other parents who feel as you do and go as a, and voice to schools I think many educators want to do the right thing too but they feel that their hands are, are tied and so on so um, I just just keep fighting we have to keep uh, the battle going because if we give up uh, you know if we really lose we may not ever win it we certainly can lose it if we don't keep fighting Thank you very much to Kitty Epstein. This is KPFA 94.1 Berkeley, KPFB 89.3, KFCF in Fresno at 88.1, and always online at kpfa.org. Stay tuned for Cover to Cover with Nina Serrano. wonderful support for our emergency fund drive. I'm your host, Nina Serrano, with my Poet to Poet series. Today's guest is Mary Rudge, Alameda Poet Laureate. Last week, Mary came by the studio to record her poems and thoughts. In our poetic conversation, we ambled through unbelievable history about Jack London and the early African-American intellectual community of Oakland and the first California poet laureate and librarian of Oakland, Ina Coolbrith. Here is poet laureate of Oakland, Mary Rudge. Hi, Nina. I'm so happy to be with you again. This is always a celebration when I can be with you no matter what day, what time, what hour, what month. Well, I'm glad you are here today because I want to catch up with you. You're Poet Laureate, and you're one of the more active Poet Laureates, busy every minute, day, night, weekdays, (laughs) weekends, finding so many ways to integrate poetry into our community. Can you tell me some of your recent activities? Sure. I wrote letters to 14 high schools in Oakland uh, last year and six high schools in Alameda, including the charter schools, asking them to honor poets and poetry by choosing a poet laureate among their students. Any way they wanted to choose, student vote, English teachers pick them out, applicants applying, saying what would motivate them to want to offer poetry to others as a leader, and only one school responded. At that time, I had the backing of a Orange and Noble bookstore that was going to have a nice celebration and perhaps do an anthology of the high school poets. And, of course, they closed at Jacqueline and Square, which broke our heart because that was a, a lodestone, you know, a key place in Oakland. We needed we needed uh, to have a major bookstore for the tourists to come and for people to center themselves when they went out to the farmer's market and watch the beautiful dragon boat races and ships and things. So it, it sort of breaks my heart that poetry is 
left out of so many aspects of society. For instance, in Oakland, the dragon boat races are just races, but they began as boats rushing out to try to save a poet who had tied a stone to himself and thrown himself into the Milo River as a protest against injustice and drowned. And this was a big thing. It's the second largest uh, aside from Chinese New Year celebration. And when I was there, I heard this wonderful story in school. Children come out and do choral readings of the poet's work and people do their original work. So I would like to see poetry have a more vital role in all aspects of our life. I know that you've been active around some historic California poets like Ina Coolbrith mm-hmm. and uh, Jack London. Can you tell us a little bit about them? Somebody was writing a book about Ina Coolbrith. Her name is Alida George. We went out to the cemetery to find her grave. She was in an unmarked grave for 56 years. And some poets got together some years ago, raised the money for a tombstone for her. So much is unknown about some of the poets. And for instance, um, her life. Just tracking it down, so many different books, and now trying to get the facts together is very difficult. The same way with Jack London, because he fictionalized his life and created himself so that you think these are autobiographical stories. You think that they're based on truth. He liked for you to think that, but they're not. <laughs> I mean, he he could be whatever he wanted to be because that's poetic license in your in your fiction, in your novels, and in your poetry. Somebody spent 20 years collecting all of his poems. He wanted to be a poet and was never published as a poet. And so now they have the collected poems of Jack London. Um, I got interested in Jack London and Robert Louis Stevenson because I lived in the neighborhood where they had both been connected. And there were a lot of old times there that knew stories about them and it was very interesting for me. In Alameda. Mm-hmm. Alameda is once part of Oakland, you know, it was a peninsula and it was cut through. So in Jack London's time, it was the Woodstock area of Oakland. So tell us a little about the Jack London that you researched, the real Jack London, not the fictionalized one. Well, it's really hard to know what's what's real. Uh, recently, I had a really lovely communication from Bruce Knight down in Southern California, who's the great-grandson of Jack London. Jack London's youngest daughter, Becky, who lived in Alameda for part of her lifetime, was the mother of a, of a child that she didn't like to acknowledge, an illegitimate girl, who married and became Knight, and then Bruce Knight became the relative. And he's researching, too, his own family. So everybody's researching. And what do you finding? I'm finding a person that people didn't know. There was a certain number of years in his life that as a child it was impressed upon him that he mustn't tell any of this information because some of the people were doing illegal things. They had interracial marriages, they were passing for white, or they had other kinds of racial complications in their life. So there were about a thousand black people in Oakland at the time, mostly uh, had come out here as after slavery, freed them, couldn't read, couldn't write, taught themselves, educated themselves, brilliantly educated themselves so that they became the first person to start an a African-American newspaper, the first person to start a school for black children because at that time the school wasn't integrated. Then it became integrated. They had the first black captain who sailed his ships out of the port of Oakland. And all of these people knew the child, Jack London, because he had been... His 
life had been saved when he was an infant by a black woman who, who took him to nurse when her child had died. His mother couldn't uh, feed him. So he was loved and raised and uh, cared for by Jenny Prentice, whose husband had actually been raised as a white person. It was found out that he had black ancestry and legally he couldn't be white. So he tried to move into the black community and he married Jenny Prentice and they became mama and papa to little Jack. It's amazing. People don't know that because when researchers were looking for information about Jack London, they never asked. We wouldn't have talked to them anyway at the time. And so none of this history came out. And now it's amazing. I'm so happy to be able to find this. I was led into it by a black historian and his wife who were researching the life of Jenny Prentice, the woman who saved Jacqueline's life, as I said. And they were the co-founders, along with about five other people, of the uh, Center for African American History and Life, which is in downtown Oakland. Now it's a big library and cultural center. This is so interesting <laughs> and so little known about Jack London. Well, I think the way we really learn to have peace in the world and love each other is to start opening up, opening up the historic connections between people that maybe couldn't be revealed during their lifetime because of the way society was. I know, you know, a really terrible thing happened to Jack London at one time. He was an adult and he taught he totally supported about 28 people with his writing. He was the first American author to make over a million dollars, and in those days that was a fantastic amount of money. One of the libraries decided to ban his books because he believed in the equality of everyone, the brotherhood of man, and he was a socialist, and they felt that that attitude in writing should be banned from America. And if his books had been banned, then he would have lost his total means of support and all of the people that he was supporting would have lost their meal ticket. So this was pretty devastating. So, of course, then he denied he was for the equality of man. He was a white supremacist. He was whatever they wanted him to say. He said it. This was not good, you know, but it's what people did sometimes to make a living. Like uh, even after Alonzo was discovered that he legally was black, he still, in order to make contracts, had to pass as white many times. He was a construction um, architect, builder in Oakland and Alameda. Well, that issue is still a very hot issue very. right here in the Bay Area where Liberty Builders, a black construction company in San Francisco, has uh, had their contract rescinded. Mm-hmm. They were supposed to build the library in Hunter's Point and it was given oh, it was given to a white contractor mm-hmm. after it was rescinded even though he had had a higher bid because of some paperwork that hadn't been perfect and there's a campaign now uh, to see that yeah. African American contractors also get some of the city so this issue that goes way back is still alive and well. You know, in the fields, when I was working with a movement for social justice in the fields, or uh, Cesar Chavez, of course, was the leader, but it had actually been started by uh, three Filipino men. And then Cesar brought another race of people in to join the Filipinos, and then that made it more powerful and more strong. But the race thing was always played against people in the fields. They would hire people from different nationalities, contracts, from people from Yemen and uh, from, from Mexico and then bring people out from the south and they would put them in alternate rows so they couldn't communicate to e- each other and organize and get together so the Japanese and the Chinese didn't communicate with the same language and the people that came over from Yemen didn't speak um, English. I had a small grant from the California Arts Council and to go down and do the oral history of workers in the fields and I paid a photographer, I paid translators and I went down with my two little children and our dog 
and we went through the to talk to people in the fields with the tape recorder and they could say whatever they wanted to and I didn't understand their language and then I had to pay somebody to to get it translated so I found people's stories and these are you know they're really sad traumatic stories about not being able to communicate well that is the role of the poet laureate is to unleash our poetic souls in our tongues and you have been very very active about every that. poet every poet a, a poet within every one of us has to has to come out in some way and you don't know you know you were educated not to be a poet perhaps in school Sure, science is important. Sure, biology is important. Sure, all, all of these things. You have to know math. You have to know these things. But actually, they can also be the language of your poetry. Some of the greatest poems that I've been reading lately are written about space and about science. And it's a new language for poetry. Um, I'm thinking of Lucille Day also, who wrote a lot of poems, putting a language into poetry, a vocabulary that a lot of people didn't know because of her background in the, in the sciences. Sterling Bunnell, who taught functional natural science and who used language in a different way in his poetry. So by studying all of these other things that we need to know, this knowledge and putting it into your poetry, it not only makes the poetry more interesting, but it also is more educational for people, too. Now, you said there was one high school that did respond to your call for the Poet Laureate. Who, which school was oh, that? Well, it was a school in Alameda, and uh, they're, they're, they, this is their second year to choose a Poet Laureate. Still, they're still the only one, and they, uh, it's called St. Joseph Notre Dame. They chose a young Chinese girl who was very shy, and she said poetry actually helped her to express herself and overcome her shyness. This year, they have chosen um, another beautiful girl, and she is um, Bengali, I believe. She speaks Bengali, and she volunteers time to teach that language. She also does uh, Odisha dance, classical dance of India. So by honoring poets that are from other cultures, too, you not only value poetry, you not only value language, the influence of language and words from other cultures, but you help people understand each other and brings peace. And that's what we're all about. We're all about you and I have edited peace books, at least four uh, chat books about peace that we're compiling into an anthology. And I brought today an anthology also from On the Edge of Peace. It's a new anthology. It took them seven years to put it together. And for about ten years, I edited a magazine that went to mm, 10 countries. It was off and on had seven different languages in it, poems in different languages. And it was called Poets and Peace International, which I paid for out of, you know, thin air. <laughs> and then... Um, this has been been my issue. I, I I did a survey through the schools of children's cognizance of the word peace, and I had children talking to a tape recorder. I asked them if they had a definition for that word. These were fourth graders in several schools, and where did they hear that word? Where did they learn that word? None of them learned it in school. They'd all heard it from somebody outside of school, and actually there weren't very many children that had a definition of it and this was strange because it was about this time of year where people were going around singing songs about peace and peace was in the air but it hadn't sunk into their minds they'd heard the word but they hadn't actually 
accepted the word as being a part of their life and having a value for them and having a definition that they could define. It wasn't on the, uh, at that time they had a list called the Dolce list, you know, where you had to learn these words by a certain point in your in your uh, English education. This This word was not a word that was in school that was being taught. So I was part of a statewide group called the California Federation of Chaparral Poets Incorporated, still existing, one of the oldest and largest groups. And every year we had a children's poetry fair of elementary school children's poetry and works. So I went to Sacramento to see if I could pass out a flyer through the uh, education department statewide to collect poems on the theme of peace. I've told this story before because I think it's hysterical. So they said very solemnly, you know, oh no, we can't, we can't discuss that in our schools. We can't have children being afraid of, of, of nuclear war. So war, oh, my goodness, I, I was talking about peace on the playground, peace between races, peace between generations, inner peace. They said, oh, you mean peace. I said, yes, positive images of peace. Because you can be anti-war, you can protest, you can demonstrate, but who's going to put the peace culture into effect and out there? You have to create it with poetry and words. So you have to give people praise for peace, the way to do peace, the things that you say to defuse violence. And that can come in poetry. That's what I believe. Do you have any poems you'd like to read about this subject? Well, this is not a poem exactly about peace in the sense that I usually write poems about peace. But I wrote this in Sri Lanka. It's called The Beautiful I was in Sri Lanka twice, and the people there, they're still barefoot people in the villages. They wear sarongs, and they dance on the earth. They dance uh, in bare feet. They have a dance that is healing. It heals psychiatric problems. It heals physical problems. It's considered a legitimate form of medicine in the country, dance. But my poem has is called The Beautiful. We do not wear animal skin fur or feathers to become more beautiful we are already the most beautiful of creation we are more like the plants and flowers than other people we never learned from saber tooths to bear fangs and bite each other or aim sharp claws at the jugular vein devour an enemy we are gentle to our children and they grow old, smiling. Here are plentiful fruits for all, vegetables, fish in the lakes, fish on the shores of the ocean which surrounds us. But now we never see oranges which grow bountifully in our country. Someone, we don't know who, has contracted for, hideous word, that means life can be bought and sold, for the oranges of Sri Lanka. Are they on the tables now of Australia or Germany? Fruits for our life that make and sustain our life. Who has power to take away these golden globes of our sun? Or anything that changes the balance of nature for us. And what will they come for next to strip the island of? Our fish? Our trees? Our children?
You just heard Mary Rudge, Poet Laureate of Alameda, reading her original work here on KPFA. Do you have another poem for us? Well, the idea in writing my books was to sort of give a journey around the world to many countries. I've been on five continents by invitation, specifically to speak at peace events. And everybody's in every country is you know, hungry for peace. They want to have a language for peace. They want to study the ways to create peace, like uh, reconciliation, uh, arbitration, negotiation. These are tools. So they want to study those. And they want to know how to educate for peace and talk to each other to try to open each other's minds, you know, and get ideas that we can share and take back to our own country. So this is a poem that I wrote for a school at the time in Berkeley when young people were arrested and given a choice of going to school or going to juvenile hall or being punished in some way, which is this school. Nevertheless, by the middle of the semester, at least one child was dead, usually by their own hand. So no one knows how to give, you know, Heim, you know, life life to young people and I visualize this teacher struggling wrestling with the angel of death for the sake of these children to teach these children I'm the angel of death the password is mine let me in the angel of death said to the poet who stood at the door I am the angel of death the password is mine let me in the angel of death said to the poet who stood at the door No, said the poet, for here I am keeper of words, all words. And she gathered into her hand, sweeping syllables and vowels and consonants mixed in the palm and said, Every word I need for the poems of young people I know, writing their way through all dread who need these words to live. One is mine, said the angel of death, give it to me. Word that is key I will use to take from life whatever child I choose. Then I'll wrestle you for it, the poet cried, that all of the children lived. But death laughed into the silence. Psalms, phrases, rewrite them all, whatever most amazes still answers to death's call. And my wings ring sinew from socket, my strengths wrench tears from eyes. I take endings of meanings, the moving finger writes on the wall what I know is all. That's sort of a long poem, so I'm going to skip the actual wrestling and the feathers flying and the, uh, like, thick foam spraying and the wings in voluptuous darkness and the voice like a tongue of fire. And I'm going to go on down to the actual winning against the angel of death. And a poet felt the curve of the earth solid under her feet with deepening dips in the soil where her heels dug in as she held holding all of the syllables tightly. She had gathered nouns, pronouns, adjectives into her hand, held tight adverbs and verbs. And keeper of the door, the holder of all the consummate words that give us ecstasy, words that tell who we are. And of the act of wonder, I see these words a tingle in the sensitive neural system. All of the nerve ends tremble to the stimuli of sound, and the human fetus respond in the heartbeat's rhythmic move, the whole evolving mind becoming articulate, and infinite perceptions receptive to words. I delight in language of joy of life. 
Never one of my words can you use against me or mine. Must I wrestle it through the darkness? Must I hold you at bay all night? I will hold you until you bless me. Holding all of the syllables tightly so her people could make their poems, she called under the rush of wings words they needed for their life. You just heard Mary Rudge, Poet Laureate of Alameda. Thank you, Mary. That was quite a powerful poem. It's a healing act to be able to write. Not only does it heal the writer, but words can go out there and connect and make a communion between us all and bring us together. Could you end our interview with a blessing for all the listeners? We who are luminous. We who are luminous are radiant. Are 90% light. Who know a fiery fusion that makes stars and suns. Whose flesh is compressed of dancing atoms. We chart an inner astronomy. Our nucleus, our energy. Without burning our eyes, we see. There is a crust of seasons that we wear. Seeds sleep along the bones, erupt and bloom in heats and darks responsive to our moon. Flames loop and leap the arteries. There is a core of ember in the womb. Beyond our brightness, our creation cells connect in constellations of our own. We who are luminous. Thank you, Mary Rutch, Poet Laureate of Alameda, California. Like many family and friends, Mary Rudge got soaked in the rain and has caught a bad cold. Please send her and all those facing challenges today your most healing thoughts. That was a conversation with Alameda poet Mary Rudge and myself, Nina Serrano. Let us send out our best thoughts to all those facing the struggles and difficulties of life in this dark season. Still time to check out beautiful trash at the de Young Museum to see the exhibit by Adrian Arias, Peruvian San Francisco artist, or as he prefers, artivist. As reported yesterday in the San Francisco Chronicle, Adrian Arias said, the aim of the project Beautiful Trash is to provoke a collective consciousness of regarding the unmeasured use of plastic and its negative environmental impact. He refers to the plastic vortex, the floating collection of trash in the Pacific Ocean, 
twice the size of Texas, and made up of all things plastic, from shoes, bags, and water bottles to toys. About 100,000 tons of plastic are created in the U.S. every minute. He says, when I discovered the existence of the garbage patch in the Pacific, I thought to myself, nature is something incredible. It takes all of these terrible things of our junk and pulls it all into one place. And our excessive consumerism is creating a new environment. It's like plastic soup. One of his large color photographs shows a white Clorox bottle washed up on the gorgeous sand beach. Looking closely, one can see seashells that have attached themselves to the bottle. In another photo, a blue ribbon is mixed in with brownish-green kelp. The ribbon appears to have been nibbled. Arias says, It's like the plastic is alive. Animals and fish and birds get confused and they eat this. They think it's food. As an artist, I'm looking for plastic. I'm looking for the beauty of it to show the contradictions. I'm a poet. I explore the world of what happens when reality has changed to a dream and the dreams to reality and we see the absurdity of human beings. When I was a kid in Peru, he said, I received a beautiful plastic record player and it was very important to me. In some ways, when I use plastic... I'm six or seven years old again, playing with plastic treasures. Only now, memory has changed, and plastic has become a problem. Plastic is now part of the seashore. It's everywhere. What was once treasured is trash. That's Adrian Arias's beautiful trash exhibit at the de Young Museum. It's free of charge throughout December from 1 to 5, Wednesday through Sunday. And Arias will be on hand 